As I mentioned, we are having a single topic sermon or a single series, if you will. Uh, the title is um, Training for Godliness, and the passage is 1 Timothy 4. In 4, 7, second half of the passage, Paul says, train yourself for godliness. He's talking to Timothy, but he's talking to the session, the elders, the church, the brothers and the sisters, and all of us. And the reason for this letter, and often Paul's letters, is there's either a current heresy, some false teaching, or it's on its way. And Timothy is the pastor at Ephesus. So we know that we have a a letter to the Ephesians. That's one of the letters we have of Paul. But we also have these two letters to Timothy while he is the pastor there. And part of what he's trying to get them to understand is what does the, what is the doctrine? What is the purity? Like, what does it mean to be godly? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And before I read it, I just want you to know that uh, most of what passes in Christianity as training for godliness, I believe, is actually false teaching. That's one of the things we're going to unpack. So often, we revert to the counterfeits we find in Ephesus that, that Paul's railing against. So I hope this morning we'll actually be encouraged that we could go into a new year training in godliness by better understanding what that looks like. Now, the first few verses are going to be interesting. Paul is talking about some very intense things that this false teaching is bringing in or, or might bring in later. And so I'll, I want to let you know that. And as I read the 10 verses right in the beginning, I'll do a little bit of minor explanation as we go. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says, that's the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That sounds really bad, and it is. That sounds like things that you can't even imagine are going to come in. But listen to the two examples. Verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods, abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you, Timothy, put these things before the brothers, that's the church, starting with the leadership on down, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith, and the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. This is correct. This is connecting our chapter with chapter one, which we'll look at a little bit later. Rather, here's the point, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy, trustworthy and deserve, deserving of full acceptance. That, that phraseology is used elsewhere. We're going to talk about that. Paul's basically saying in verse 9, listen. Listen carefully to verse 10. For to this end we, the apostles, toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, 
Our hope is set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are living and you bring life and you do so by the word of your power through the presence of your spirit. Lord, as hard as it might seem and even mysterious as these realities are, we believe them. We do. We believe you. And we believe your doctrine is pure. And we believe you are the giver of life. But we also, Lord, struggle to orient all of our lives around that truth. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you would teach Christians in the audience this morning to train in godliness, Father. But I also pray for those that might be tuning in who are not Christians. So often, Lord, I think it's the church and the false doctrines that really confuse people. And so they aren't sure what the whole thing's about anyway. I pray this morning, by, by really focusing in on what godliness means, there might be new hope and your spirit might open the eyes of an unbeliever even this morning. Amen. Um, it's a New Year sermon. I love, I love New Year sermons. I used to kind of say, I bet none of you set goals. Now I'm noticing on Facebook, like everyone has some kind of opinion about 2021. We, we know the pandemic's over, right? Because, it, oh, it's not over? Okay. Maybe the pandemic's not over, but what we all believe is that if we come into a new year, maybe we can make some adjustments. We can make changes. I, I think it's part of the species. That is, human beings, it's in, indelibly stamped on our soul to want to improve. That's just something we want to do. Now, you might say, what about the people who say things like, in 2021, I'm staying the same. Well, that's an improvement. A person who says that, saying my tendency would be to do something else, I'm making an improvement by staying the same. My point is all humans seek improvement on some level. Christians, we all as Christians believe, the Bible teaches this improvement. It's called sanctification. So training in godliness is simply another way of saying, how are you, how am I going into 2021 going to train in godliness, how am I going to sanctify or be sanctified in the new year? That's what we're talking about, right? The problem is, as I've already stated before I read the passage, is for most of us, especially Christians, every method we employ, if we're not careful, has at its core the very fallen issues in Ephesus, counterfeit methods that I'm going to improve me. I'm going to work on myself. I'm going to make adjustments, and I'll come out the other side of those adjustments better than I was before. It sounds super appealing. It even gets exciting. You can feel it. When, you're, when you stumble upon it, you kind of like it. You, you have something. You get excited. Yet what Paul's teaching and that we're going to unpack is that the same methods and the same reality that we have in heaven one day, Sunday, that is full intimacy, fully being known, fully in relationship with our triune God through the Spirit, Son, and Father, that reality breaks in to the present life. And our training then, whatever it is that we're going to do in training in godliness, is to bring our lives here into conformity with that. Does that make sense? So say it another way, uh, think of training as taking good doctrine that we believe, and applying it to the, all the places in our bodies, our lives, 
our, our reality that we aren't following that doctrine. There's a lot of them. So that's what we're going to do with training. The two main points, what is godliness? And number two, how do we train for it? So what is godliness? The word in the Greek used in our passage occurs 15 times in the New Testament. Ten of those uses are by Paul, the apostle. Of those ten, all of them are in the pastoral epistles. Pastoral epistles are letters to pastors, Timothy and Titus. There's three letters, two to Timothy, one to Titus, whereas the other epistles are to churches. And it's eight of the ten are in this letter. So Paul has, in his mind, a desire to see Timothy and his congregation train in godliness. What is the definition of godliness? Here's my work, I'm looking at the Greek and looking at all of it, I'm just, here's a working definition. The outward manifestation of an inward devotion to our Heavenly Father. Now why, why that definition, why that's important? In 2 Timothy, where there's one use of the word, uh, he talks about, and we're gonna read it later, in chapter three, uh, he starts talking about, again, in the end days, there's gonna be this, and he just lists off a series of horrible things, people doing awful things. And then he says in verse five, having the appearance of godliness. So we're gonna unpack that a little bit later. But what's fascinating, he says, what they're doing wrong is they're denying the power source. They're denying godliness's power source. So for godliness to be outwardly manifested, which is where most of us picture it happening, it has to have an interior power source, which is Jesus. So where we're gonna spend a lot of our discussion is how do we center our lives on Christ we just sing abide with me in such a way that that power source leads to outward manifestations of godliness. But what I wanna do now is, is just poke at two counterfeits in our, in our text. The main counterfeit we see that's really getting Paul's attention is, uh, is um, well, let me just say this. Both counterfeits that we're gonna explore misunderstand the power of the physical realm. The, the, the counterfeit godliness that often we find ourselves trying to do is we're giving too great of a weight to the physical realm. And the two ways we do that is one, we restrict ourselves, or the other is we allow way too much. Those are kind of the two things we do to try to find godliness apart from Jesus. And we see that in our passage when he says, in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to these deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. But he says, what's the primary behavior? No marriage and avoid food. So it's this kind of constant, we have it in the Christian world, you'll hear it still today, you need to restrict, do less, cut out, discipline. Now discipline is a great thing, you'll hear that later. But oftentimes what's really being stated is if we take more rules, more plans, more strictures, more laws, your flesh, which is the real problem, will be restrained. Now, we see that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. This, we're reading 1 Timothy this morning. Remember I said chapter 1 connects to chapter 4. In chapter 1, he barely has just introduced this false teaching, and then he says this, we know the law is good. That's what, chapter 1, verse 8. We know the law is good. What is the law? The, the, all the rules, 
of the Bible. Good rules. He says, we know it's good if it's used lawfully. Now, we know Paul says that elsewhere. And he goes on to say, understanding this, it was laid down for the just, not for the just, excuse me, but for the lawless. What's his point? His point is this. The law's benefit is when it shows you your error. But when you take the law, and a lot of times people do this, to become the goal, like I want to do these restrictive things because that will make me godly, that's the goal, that's the end, then he's saying you're actually missing the point of godless, uh, of the law. You see this in Colossians too. This heresy shows up in a lot of places. He says these rules, these laws, have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value, listen to this, these rules that we often employ to restrain, to, to be godly, have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You know when Jesus says when you clean the house, the demon goes out and then it returns and sees the house is clean and it brings seven more demons. Uh, Jesus' point there is even, I mean he has a larger point I can't go into, but uh, as a micro point is there's a tendency for us in the flesh to make adjustments that seem to work for a season and you'll notice, have you ever stopped something and you had this victory for a season and then boom, it was like you had never, like it was worse than it was before. So the point is the rules can't change you. And that's one of the counterfeits of, that Paul's f- fearful of in this, wor- in this writing. What, what gives these, this rule-centered so much power, and this is the key, I want you to hear this, is that when we set rules for ourselves, remember, discipline is good. Having guidelines we'll talk about is helpful, but what we're talking about is when the guideline, the goal, the rule, is the thing. Like, it's the thing itself. And when we do it, it just feels powerful. Um, And I think Paul's saying it's because there's a spiritual force behind it. And and I mentioned this not long ago in Galatians, that the, the term elemental principles or elemental spirits can be both regarding the law for the Jew in the Old Testament, he says, in Galatians 4, but also for the pagan, like just turning to elements, to the physical realm to find power. In our passage, he says this, in the, in the end times or the, the later times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to what? Deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And yet, the examples are don't get married and don't eat certain foods. And so the point is this. We have a tendency to turn to the rules as a counterfeit for godliness and infuse the rule with power. I've done this. Often I'll think, I need to read my Bible more. I'm sure all of us have had that thought. I I can remember times where I began an internet search. What's the best way? And I found myself getting super excited to find the right plan, the right method, all that. Good things. But what I'm just confessing is I could feel an energy not in knowing Jesus better, not in drawing closer to my Savior, but figuring out a rule by which I will feel better. Do you see what I'm saying? We all do that. It's very easy to slip into the counterfeit. That's why Paul's warning Timothy. So that's one of the major counterfeits. Um, Remember, and I just want to say this as I move into the second one, What both counterfeits have in common is they're actually avoiding needing a savior. That's 
That's what we're going to talk about. In fact, just to give you the heads up, verse 10, we, our hope is set not on the rule, not on the, the goal, not on the law, not on the asceticism, on the living God who currently present since is the Savior. So for Paul, and we're going to build on this later, you know you're doing godliness when it reminds you that God is living and you need his saving. Anything that goes after the rule without God is probably our attempt to actually avoid Jesus altogether. It's very painful to have to go toward that cross on a daily basis. It feels much more comfortable to go after laws and rules, especially some that we can keep and avoid Jesus. But the other one then is pleasure is good. If the first one is pleasure is bad, the second one is, oh, if pleasure is good, let's have more pleasure. Now, the passage I'm gonna quote comes from the next letter of Timothy, 2 Timothy 3. But even in our passage, there's a bit of a shift when Paul says, while bodily training is of some value. There's been debate over what he means by that. Paul is not commending the heresy he's just condemned. He's not saying there's some value in it. He's not doing that. Nor is he saying, Timothy, I think you should start exercising. Both of those views are held by very awesome theologians from the history. But the primary meaning and the more prevalently understood meaning is bodily training would have been valued by the local congregation by the, the Ephesian people, people from that era, area, unlike Stoicism, which was coming through this form of counter teaching where it's like the body, don't, you know, don't, do, don't enjoy pleasure, focus, mental. These individuals might have highly valued physical training. And so he's really using that goodness as a leaping point to say, let me tell you what godliness is, which is our, we're going to talk about in a moment how to train for it. But the point is this, if you're not careful, he's suggesting even here, if it becomes too important to you, you'll miss out on godliness as well. So if the body becomes too important. But if you back up a few verses, that was verse 7. At the end of these first verses, he says, for God, everything is from God and is created by him and nothing's to be rejected. And Paul is aware that if we're not careful, we can go too far that direction and in 2 Timothy 3, I, I already read to you the appearance of godliness. Do you remember that? This idea that people will have the appearance of godliness without power. Listen to the list. I mentioned there was this horrible list. I'm going to read you the list. Okay? Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, understand this, Timothy. In the last days, that sounds very similar to our passage, right? There will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. <laughs> Remember that, kids. That's as bad as it gets. Unholy, ungrateful, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, dot, dot, dot. That's my insertion. It's not in the Greek. Verse 5, having the appearance of godliness. You hear that? Something is going on. There's, and Paul is saying, listen, it's possible to, in the name of godliness, do crazy stuff and, and make excuses for your craziness. And we would call that, I think, cheap grace. To kind of develop some version of theology and doctrine that basically allows me 
to just do whatever I want. That's the other counterfeit. One counterfeit, restriction. One counterfeit, do whatever I want. Now, I want to just make this statement that both of those, I believe, uh, happen in all of us. Sometimes a person will spend a long, long time in the restriction phase. And then something will snap and they'll maybe hear grace or just burn out or whatever and they'll become in the other side, which is like, bring it on. Everything's made by God. And, and they just bypass the gospel and go right into another form of counterfeit. But also, let me be clear, most of us do it daily. You can, want at one and the same point, have certain things you're super strict about by which you feel good about your religion and other things you just completely don't care about under the name of gospel or grace. And so I just want to make sure we understand it's not all one way or the other. It's almost always a compartmentalization. And so what we need to actually do rather than, we, need to, we can explore those ways in our own lives, but we need to come to this litmus test of godliness in our passage, which is this. Paul says in verse 4, for everything was created by God and is good, and nothing's to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Now, that word is totally, like, maligned, I think. It's too, too, oh, if I just say thank you. You know, so often people will pray at dinner, pray at breakfast, pray at whatever. Those are good practices. As if to say, if I just do this prayer, then this food's better for me than it would have been or whatever. Again, it's a good practice. But listen to what G.K. Chesterton says. Coleman, if you can put that quote up for me. He says, you say grace before meals. All right. I say grace before the play and the opera, and grace before the concert and pantomime. I don't know what the pantomime is. And grace before an, I open a book, and grace before sketching and painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. His point is that all of life is redeemed. One of the most misunderstood things in Christianity today is that God made this world for your pleasure. And when we engage this world as disciples of, of God and Christ, understanding it's for him, with thanksgiving, that will be a great correction to so many of these counterfeits we engage in. You know, it's very hard to engage in a sinful activity if right before it, you're praising God and thanking him for it. You're not gonna do that. And by the way, God created the earth, but the man made stuff like pornography. Man has marred God's creation. The idea is not everything that's in existence you get to go just do. The point is seek God and his creation and everything we do and thank him. And that will be a great litmus test for how we live our lives. Now, I, we had a friend come stay with us and he's very smart and he spent New Year's Eve night and then New Year's Day morning and somehow we got on a conversation of gravity. He's a scientist, so my brain wasn't quite keeping up with his. I did a little bit of reading, but here was what he was just kind of telling me something he'd been thinking about. Um, and all I'm gonna do is paraphrase what he was saying by saying this. His point was gravity, for scientists, is the sort of the central force, and almost the most inexplicable force in the universe. That whether you're talking about a galaxy, a solar system, the Earth turns, the way the things work on our planet, 
all the way into the molecules and the atoms and the cellular level. I know I went out of order. That, that all of life has this idea of rotating around a central thing. In fact, I did a little Googling this morning. Here's what I found. Uh, not only does mass and energy, planets, stars, and galaxy, but light itself re responds to gravity. And then I read this. The ongoing search for gravity, they don't know where it's coming from. And it goes on to say, the proposed fundamental particle carrying gravitational force, that's the proposed idea, is a crucial step in physicists' long journey toward the theory of everything. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about. I don't. Email me, give me information, that's great. I may or may not read it, but here's the point. I know enough to know this. Scientists are trying to answer a question we all should be answering. How does everything work? And what they're trying to figure out is if they have discovered enough to know that the entire universe has an operating scheme, they just can't figure out what it is, I would argue the Bible tells us. In Hebrews 1, we studied it a few weeks ago where Jesus says, uh, where, where the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so the very first place in 1 Timothy where the word godliness is used is in chapter 3, verse 16, where he says, great is the mystery of godliness. So remember the word mystery there. Here are physicists trying to figure out what's keeping everything working the way it is with gravity. And here's Paul saying, I have the answer to your mystery. And listen to what he says in verse three, chapter 3, verse 16. He was manifested in the flesh. He. So the mystery of godliness is not you. You, me, I. Oh, training in godliness. What is godliness? Me, no. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. If you are a Christian, the doctrines that Paul's begging Timothy to remember, begging you and I to study, this, the truth of Scripture says this, God upholds everything by the word of his power, Jesus, and that's who our Savior is. So whatever training in godliness means, it means getting back to that spot over and over again, and actually, freshly, because it's realizing the places that aren't in line with that understanding. So godliness is everything orienting itself toward the, our Heavenly Father through the power of Jesus, and that's where life is lived. When cells don't operate like they're designed, when atoms don't operate like they're designed, when your soul doesn't operate like it's designed, that's where problems come. So sanctification is coming back to the place where the things are working as they're designed around Jesus. So, we have a few minutes left on training now. We talked about godliness training. We have to pay attention to Paul's metaphor. Sometimes he's so clear with the metaphor that we're like, okay, I get it, but I want to make sure we understand what he's doing. So first we're going to talk about the benefits of training. Physical training has benefits. When you see some athlete doing some crazy thing, in some training room, as dumb as it might look to you, you also are able to go, but I know that's gonna lead them to their goal. Their, their goal is to get a little better, so they're doing that. I used to have these shoes with these really crazy front things that you walked around to build your calves. It looks so dumb. 
But people who saw it were like, oh, he's trying to jump higher. Okay. Now, here's the point. Training is designed to bring you to a breaking point. If you talk to any trainer, especially the really good ones who have the really good athletes, their challenge is to break that athlete's you know, body down just enough for repair, and their bodies are way better at not being broken down than ours. For most of us, 30 minutes in the gym and we're super sore. For a trained athlete, it's like, okay, for you, we have to do, and they have this entire system planned out, what? So that the athlete would walk away feeling better about themselves? That was really fast today. No, that the athlete would have breaking down and repair. That's the point, right? So what is it that our goal should be in our godly training is to do whatever on earth happens in heaven. What happens in heaven? 1 Corinthians 13, what goes on past everything else is love. So the, the heart of godliness, which is love to the Father and love to our neighbor, the heart of godliness comes through training. And whatever we do with training, it has to be focused on that. So your goal in our training program is to love God and to seek today what's going to happen in heaven and use the same reality there in your lives now. Okay? Now, in our passage, Paul says, here's the, here's the saying, our hope is set on a living God. The athlete's hope is set on like, yeah, when I'm 32, my career's over. Like, very limited goals. He's saying, Christians, our goal is forever, for eternity. What a wonderful thing to train in. Something that's never going to go away. He's a living God, but notice the second description in verse 10 who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. He's a saving God. Okay, so the benefits of training are that what we do today is connected to the future, okay? And of course, I, I don't think I've read it in our passage, but he says, godliness is of value in every way because it holds the promise for the present and for the life to come. That's the, that's the goal of training. What's the meaning of training? Like, what do we do with it? The meaning of training is to grow. Um, you have to be brought to a, a weak place. You have to come to a place where your body is rightly broken down to grow. And so for Paul, he never gets beyond something. For Paul, he never forgets he's a sinner. And it's very strange. But I will say this. I think using the gravity metaphor, it makes total sense. If you are, if, if this is a little bit of no one. The closer you get to the center, the faster things spin. Am I right with gravity, people? There's like eight of you. Isn't it fair to suggest that if there's like, like for example, when you spin the, the blood, the plasma, the separation happens because the stuff that's not properly united gets moved out. Am I right? The, the faster it spins. Okay. Metaphor might break down. Here's the point. I'm trying to convince you, gracers, people tuning in, my own heart, that the Christian life is one of seeing more of my sin the closer I get to my source. So much of what passes for Christian godliness is a mindset of less sin, and it doesn't happen that way. In chapter one, Paul has just railed on the law, saying it's, the design of the law is for you know, brokenness. I want you to run to Jesus, and then in verse 15, he says, this saying is trustworthy. So in our verse, 410, he has that. Listen to what Paul says in verse 15 of chapter 1. 
And it's worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I am the foremost. What is he saying there? The Greek, I'm not an expert at Greek. I do remember my beginning Greek class. We had to take verbs and conjugate verbs. Amy, Amy is a verb that means to be. And you conjugate that one of the first, because it's super irregular in the Greek. You know, I am, I was, I will be, he is, you know, that kind of stuff. Paul says in the most clear words, he says, Amy, ego. I, ego is the pronoun I. I, present tense, indicative, am. Not to be miscon, I'm not making any connection to God, you know, Yahweh's name. That's not the point. The point is, Paul sees himself many, many, many years later after having done the atrocious things he did in the book of Acts, such as overseeing the stoning of, of, the, of the deacon Stephen. He watched that happen. He praised it. He encouraged it. And now, many, many years later, he says, live as I've lived, and he tells people that he, you know, and then he says, I am the foremost of sinners. What's he saying? Well, what he's not saying is, joking, I used to be, but I'm being humble. No, that would be counterintuitive. He's also not saying, I still sneak out and kill people. Like, you don't know this about me, but I sneak out at night and I still stone Christians. It's super fun. He's not doing that either. What he's saying is, the closer I've gotten to the source, Jesus, the more I know him, the more I see the places in my body, in my being, my soul, my heart, my flesh, that are in rebellion. And I'm aware, one of the chief things Paul would say that I'm aware of, this side of heaven, is that in myself, apart from God, I am a sinner. And so training then in godliness with Paul is always going to the cross. Any attempt you make to grow by bypassing the cross is a counterfeit, and it will crush you. It will harm you. Even if you say, ah, fine, I just won't do anything, that's going to harm you. If you go to the cross and through the cross, it will heal you. So that's the meaning of training, that we're going into these hard places. You finish a workout and it's done correctly, you're laying on the ground, okay? You're not going to the hospital, that's too much. But you're also not just walking around with your water, you know, people at the gyms, hey, they kind of a social hour and then they get on the treadmill for three minutes and go home. That's not it either. Training is going to the cross and being exposed. What are the tools in our passage? He says this, put these things before you brothers, before the brothers, doctrine and faith, and so the tools for Paul, primarily, I want to just focus on Scripture as we close. And he says this um, in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. How many of you, just a few of you other here, have heard that verse? Heard that verse? It's fascinating when you think about what he's explaining. When I go to my Bible correctly, I will feel reproof and correction. So my question to us as Christians is how often when I read my Bible is that what's happening? Am I really training? Look at Hebrews 4. The, the, those, these are the two most popular and proper verses for Bible reading, and they're, they're very valuable. 
Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Christians, here's the point. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. There's places in my life that are in rebellion. I need to come to the scripture and pray that the spirit would open my eyes. So I'm praying, I'm meditating, I'm reading the scripture, I'm seeking healing through a sword piercing my soul. That is, I'm confessing my sin. I'm naming the fact that yesterday I lost my temper. I had a a longing for something that was not right. But I'm not just confessing it. I'm saying, Holy Spirit, teach me how to not make that mistake again. Like, just like if you're training, you want to look at the video and go, oh, I see, I got angry because when the person left the room, I felt abandonment. Or whatever the process is, I'm being honest in the scripture and it's starting to shape me. And it feels both painful but healing. Does that make sense? So I'm trying to be super practical. I've gone a tiny bit longer than I meant to. The process for training is this. Number one, don't just think I'm saying this because I'm your pastor. You have to go to church. Like my week, the way God set up everything revolves around my Sabbath. Your week, your life revolves around that day that God has given you to join in worship. I know we're in a pandemic. 2021, we pray, we'll come back together. But even now, we have the resources. Are we worshiping? Are we known? Are we in community? Okay? Are we hearing the word preached? Are we reading ahead? I would love it if you guys would read the scripture ahead and maybe read, you know, to read 1 Timothy would have taken you eight minutes to prepare for this morning's discussion. Are we coming to worship ready? Secondly, are we praying in the morning? Are we spending time? Here's, the, here's the really the, the way I want you to think about it. Whatever you would do, the energy you would use to employ a diet, a workout regimen, a reading program, whatever self-improvement, the energy you would use for that, I think Paul's saying use more of that energy for godliness. But whatever you do, it has to be driving you and me to the cross. That's the point. That's hard. So it means I need people. I need to actually not just do my own thing. I might need to go to somebody and say, can you help me see my blind spots? What are the things I'm doing? Where am I weak? What, you know, I need a trainer. And so the conclusion is just this. I would ask you to, as you go into 2021, and I mean this with all sincerity, write out a plan. Write out a plan. Here's when I'm spending time in the Word. Here's when I'm going to church and how I'm going to make it work regularly. Here's how I'm going to move toward a a certain number of brothers or sisters for intimacy. I'm going to start an accountability group. Whatever your plan is, write it out, pray through it, and then make sure you're not doing the counterfeit of making that the thing, but that Jesus is the thing. Jesus loves you. Jesus came for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus said, you are mine. He's redeemed you. He's rescuing you. He's saving you. And one day, someday, we will meet with him face to face. And what he is suggesting in this passage, Paul is, is that our entire life's training should be about that day right now. All right. That's our New Year's sermon. 
I went a little long. I love you guys. I hope we come together next week, but let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you've called us to training. Lord, we, we often complain about how co- costly a gym membership can be or we, we, the lengths we have to go to to eat better or whatever the training is for our body. And what you're saying in this passage is godliness training is of infinite value. Lord, help us to go to even more lengths to see your gospel. Lord, help us not slip into the two counterfeits on one side of, doing, of focusing only on the rules, seeing those. Lord, help us set up the rules that drive us to the cross, that we can join in with Paul in saying this statement is trustworthy, that you, Jesus, have rescued me, a great sinner. You are a great Savior, that you are living And Lord, I pray that your Bible would come alive to people this year, that we would not just blaze through it or ignore it, the two counterfeits, but that we would actually feast on it, knowing that your spirit not only wrote it for us, but is present in our soul, illuminating it and making it work in our souls to feed us and to train us for righteousness. Lord, teach us to press into community where we are known and where we also risk knowing people and even speaking into their lives as they speak into ours. Lord, let us please shed this game-playing Christianity that so many people do. Let us repent of it. It's false. It's rubbish. You want us all, all of us. In your name we pray. Amen.